Stars in the C? No, the Stars in the A. to me.
What's going on? Alonzo. What's going on? We're late. We're late. It's, it's like 32. <laughs> you just want to derail my gig, don't you? <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Oh, sorry that was loud. Wake up. <laughs> Will you stand in? Sing with us. Chapter 16, that is where we're going to be camped out for most of this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now for the last couple of weeks leading up to Christmas Day, we've been investigating the family line of Jesus in a series that I've called Family Christmas. Now the first week we looked at Rahab, who was an outsider and a prostitute, yet there was room in Jesus' family for her. And I stated that if there was room for someone like her in Jesus' family, then there's room for you in Jesus' family as well. Then last week we looked at Ruth and Boaz and how God used Boaz as kinsman redeemer to graft an outsider and non-Israelite widow into the family line of Jesus. This week, we look at one of the most famous names that we see pop up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, in his book, Team of Rivals, excuse me, in the book, uh, it's not a he, it's a she, sorry. Uh, In the book, Team of Rivals, Doris, a she, right? In the book of Rivals, boy, let me just start that sentence over again because it's not coming out right this morning. In the book Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote that Abraham Lincoln has unequaled power to captivate the imagination and inspire emotion. And many people feel the same way about King David of Israel. There's something about this man that is said to be a man after God's own heart that just captivates us. In some cases, he draws our ire for his behavior in certain situations. The life of King David of Israel is well documented in scripture with its many ups and downs. He had some really high highs and he had some really low lows. And here he is for us to look at. Now I want to begin by noting a couple of important items as we enter today. First, I will not be covering the entire life of David I'll mention some things about his later life, but this particular passage is regarding when David was anointed as king by the prophet Samuel, though he would not actually get to reign as king for some time afterward. Secondly, the main thing I want you to understand that goes on in the life of David is that David is never the main character of the story. We need to come to scripture understanding that God is the main character. He's the hero of the story. It isn't David, and it's certainly not us. It is possible that we could really go far afield with our understanding if we come to the Bible with the idea that it's all about us, because it's not. For sure, the scriptures do talk about us, but we are never the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, even in the Old Testament, and this is key. And with that in mind, let's dive into 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it to our lives. God, we come this morning beaten up by the world and by life. Some of us broken. Use your word to heal us. God, I pray that you would help me be clear with my words, that you would increase, that I would decrease, that you would speak to the hearts of your people by your word, Jesus. This is about you. It's not about me. Don't, don't let me make it about me, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. To start, I want to give you a very, very brief history of Israel up to this point of David being anointed king. So years and years before, God had chosen Israel to be his people. There was nothing special about them that made God choose them, but in his sovereign will and way, he chose the people of Israel to be his people. Now, eventually, they end up in captivity in Egypt as slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I said this was a very brief summary, okay? As most of you know, there's a lot that goes in there. God raises up a leader for them named Moses, who's a messenger to the people and to Pharaoh. God sends ten plagues on the Egyptians until they release the people and send them on their way. God rescues them from the pursuing Egyptian army after Pharaoh changes his mind and gives pursuit. And after they've been rescued, they've passed through the Red Sea on dry land. Pharaoh's army has been destroyed. God's there leading him. 
the people then sinned and God decreed that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they would enter the land of Canaan, the land he had promised them. We call it the promised land. So God gave them the law of Moses and specific instructions for how to worship him and to sacrifice to atone for sin. And all of these events are recounted in the first five books of the Bible. And all of this time, there was no king in Israel. They were simply led by God. Then, fast forward a little bit, we enter into a period of time that we were in last week called the period of the Judges. And during this time, there was a cycle that we see repeated over and over again. You can read about it in the book of Judges. The people would do evil in the sight of the Lord. God would send another nation to oppress the people. The people would cry out to God, and God would send a judge to rescue the people. Then they would have peace for a time, and then the cycle would repeat over and over again. And the final verse in the book of Judges tells us that, uh, and this is uh, chapter 21, verse 25 of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Eventually, eventually the Israelites start to complain because all these other nations around them have a king and they want a king like all the other nations around them. So they tell Samuel, the prophet, that they want a king. And God tells Samuel to warn them about the ways of the king that will reign over them. So he does, he tells them, warns them, and they still demand a king. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So Samuel is sent by God to anoint a man named Saul as king. He was to be a king to unite and rule Israel under God. This is the king that the people had asked for. Then as men do, Saul sinned against God and he was rejected by God as king. There's so much there that it feels like a disservice uh, to the enormity of that statement for us just to buzz by it. I mean, a whole sermon could be preached on that alone, but... We continue on. Samuel is in deep distress over Saul being rejected by God, over Saul's sin. He's grieving over Saul. And God speaks to Samuel and tells him to get up and head for a guy named Jesse, and there God will show him who the new king will be that will be one of Jesse's sons. I want to show you something. And if you're taking notes, this is number one. Samuel obeyed God and went. Samuel obeyed and went. God said, go. He said, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Get up. And I'm going to show you who the new king is. The prophets kind of get superhero status in our minds sometimes. But they were just men. They were fallible sinners, just like you and me, who were used mightily by God. Samuel was in grief over what had gone on with Saul and how the king that he had anointed had fallen so far from the Lord. But when God spoke, he got up and he headed out. His grief would not deter him, deter, excuse me, deter him from living obediently to what God had commanded him to do. He feared Saul because Saul was only faithful to himself. Who could tell 
what Saul would do if he found out that Samuel was coming right by his headquarters on his way to anoint a new king. Friends, how many times in our lives do we let our fear, our circumstances keep us from being obedient to what God has called us to do? God hasn't called you to go and anoint another king in place of the one you're scared of. He's called you to read his word, to love him, to do the things he commands, to to be a regular attender of church. But too often, we're too scared of the world around us or our own discomfort or too preoccupied with ourselves that we disobey what has clearly been commanded to us by God. If that's you today, I just tell you, repent. Repent of your sin and turn towards God. He offers forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. So you've been neglecting the things of, the, of God. Just repent. Repent. He offers forgiveness. I used to tell my students, um, when I, we would talk about them uh, in their daily walk with the Lord, um, and I think this is true, really, of most things in our walk with the Lord. But I would tell this to them of like their their quiet time or their devotional time with the Lord. I said, so you know what the secret is to, to live in the Christian life? And I would say, it's not that you're perfect at every day reading your Bible. It's not that you're perfect every day praying and all that stuff. What it is, is when you miss it one day, that you come back. When you miss it for two days, that you come back. This was illustrated when Bethany was, a, was an intern uh, doing youth ministry uh, as, a, as like a, just a volunteer um, intern at a, for a youth group. One of the trainers brought his prayer journal and, to show and hold up. And he would get to a page and it would just say, whoops, or sorry God because he missed the day. But the secret wasn't that it was perfect because you're not, that's not going to happen. Like I'm your pastor, I miss days, okay? What the secret is, is coming back the next day. Continually returning to the Lord. So if today this is you and you say, yeah, I've let my fear and my grief over whatever's gone on in my life or my, uh, whatever it is, keep you from being obedient to the Lord, whether it's your daily time with the Lord, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever it is, it might be your giving, it might be your being part of, of local church, the one another's in scripture, whatever it is, you can come back. Because that's, that's what we have in Christ. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. And we can just run back to him. Samuel belonged to the Lord, and though he was afraid, he went. God gave him more information about the plan. He needed to go and offer a sacrifice uh, anyway. So God uses that official occasion for a way to get Samuel in front of Jesse and his sons to anoint one of them as king. And God tells Samuel that he will show him which one of Jesse's sons it will be. So Samuel gets to Bethlehem. That name of that town is kind of on the top of our minds this month, isn't it? Bethlehem. You remember where the stuff with Ruth and Boaz took place last week? Bethlehem. And we're talking about the family line of Jesus, who eventually ends up in a manger in Bethlehem, right? So Samuel gets to Bethlehem. He gets Jesse's sons in front of him. They're parading in front of him, but there's a problem. 
there's a problem. Eliab is the oldest, so of course he steps up first. Samuel even thinks this has got to be the guy. But God says no. Then comes the next, and it's not him either. 1 Samuel 16.10 says, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. If you've got a weird imagination, this is like an interesting game of duck-duck-goose, right? Um, like they're coming by, and he's like, eh, it's not that one. No, not that one. If you're taking notes, this is actually under the second point, and that's this. Why wasn't it? Why wasn't any of these? Well, Samuel was looking at who was in front of him because man only sees what is visible. Man only sees what's visible. We look, we see someone. Oftentimes we make judgments based on what we see. Samuel asked Jesse if these are all the sons that he's got. And Jesse says, well, there's the youngest, but he's still out with the sheep. And Samuel tells him, go ahead and send for the youngest. And I love this part. We're not going to sit down till he gets here. Now, I don't know how far out in the passage he, or past, pasture he was. I don't know how far out in the fields with the sheep he was. I don't know what time that is, but can you imagine being the brothers? You've just all walked in front of Samuel. He's like, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one. Where's the youngest? Okay, go get him, and we're not going to sit down until he shows up. Try to imagine you're there. The tallest, the strongest looking son would not, would not have been chosen. The ones that you would look at and you would think, that's, that's king material right there. Saul, after all, was a tall, manly kind of king, warrior. One would assume that that pattern would hold true for the next king as well. Obviously, Samuel did. Isn't that how we choose? We look for the guy who has the best haircut or the snappy dresser or the biggest biceps. We look for a guy who has money or the one who is successful by the world standards because we look at what we can see. I've seen this too oftentimes in church. You'll go into some churches and you'll wonder why, why is the state of that church in such disarray? And oftentimes you'll look at who's in leadership and the people they have in leadership were put in leadership not because they were godly people, but because they were really good at selling insurance or really good bankers or lawyers or they were really, really well, uh, you know, good businessmen or whatever or had a lot of money. Because humans look at what's visible, but God looks at the heart. I love every year when the NFL draft comes up, somebody on the internet always goes back 20 some odd years ago and pulls up that old pasty white picture of a shirtless Tom Brady. I don't know if you've seen this or know this, but when you look at him, he wasn't highly touted or expected to do big things in the league. And in the pick, he looks like sort of like a mildly out of shape guy. Nothing really special about him. But then he goes on and becomes the greatest quarterback to ever play the game of football. Like him or not, right? It's interesting. But, but, but we look at the outside. Back to our passage. The youngest son of Jesse finally shows up. His name's David. And the scripture says he was ruddy. That's a word we don't use a lot. Ruddy. Had beautiful eyes and was handsome. 
Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary, uh, had an election been held in Israel to choose a replacement for King Saul, it's not likely that the people would have chosen David, but he was God's first choice. There were some unusual things about David that made him an unexpected choice, humanly speaking, for a king. The first one is David's city of Bethlehem. So from Ramah, where Samuel would have been, and I mentioned this earlier, he would have had to pass right by Gibeah, Saul's headquarters, and the elders of the city knew about their estrangement. They also had likely heard that Samuel had just murdered King Agog. Um, that's a, uh, or Agag, that's a previous passage you'll have to go back and read. In the passage where Saul sins and is disobedient and rejected by the Lord. And um, he, he, he doesn't kill everybody in this place as he's commanded to, and so Samuel takes care of it. So the elders, Samuel shows up, and they're not really sure what's about to happen, right? And they want to know if he's there for peace. Secondly, besides David's city being an unusual place for the king to come from, is David's family. He was the youngest. The Hebrew word that is translated youngest can also carry the connotation of the tiniest or the smallest. One commentator that I read refers to him as the runt king. I don't know if I'll go that far with it, but I thought it was kind of funny. Third, David's occupation. Shepherd. Shepherds did not have the greatest reputations. They were in the fields for long periods of time, and they would have potentially been considered unclean because they were away from, they would have been away from the temple for long periods of time. Or, sorry, at that time, it wouldn't have been the temple. In the New Testament times, we find them as some, some, of the, so, some kind of social rejects. This is not where you think your next king is going to come from. It's not where you think your next king is going to come from. Fourth, David's appearance. He was ruddy. He was ruddy. It's possible that his hair had a red tint to it, or that he was fairer complected than others. But he was handsome with beautiful eyes. The idea here is that he was not the warrior king looking guy. Okay? We read that and we think, oh, he was handsome. Of course, we want the king to be handsome. They wanted the king to be tough. He didn't have that warrior king look about him. But God was about to show that even though man only sees the visible, the Lord God sees the heart. And that's point number three if you're taking notes. The Lord God sees the heart. Man sees on the outside, but God looks inside and sees what's there. And I want to say, even when we look at the outside and we think, wow, that person's terrible, not fit for this, or wow, that person's amazing, God knows what's really going on on the inside. It's really easy for us to come to church and fake how our lives are going. We live in an age where you can literally make people believe by your posting on Instagram or whatever social media you use, make people think your life is perfect. And on the inside, it can be completely falling apart. As we see the outside, but God sees the heart. Saul had been the prototypical king. He was tall, he was strong, but God looks at the character and posture of the heart. And God knew that Saul's heart was set on one thing. Saul's heart was set on Saul. But David, as his actions in the following chapter show, had a heart 
that belong to the Lord. David is referred to often as a man after God's own heart. Now, if you're like me, you wonder, where did that come from? Well, after Saul had offered an unlawful sacrifice in 1 Samuel 13, 13 through 14, we find this passage. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And this passage is referenced in the New Testament in Acts 13, verse 22, when Paul is preaching in Antioch, where it says this, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. But what does that mean? What does it mean that he was a man after God's own heart? It means that in all things, the character and posture of his heart was toward God and toward obeying the commands of God. Now, that does not mean he was perfect. David, if you're familiar with his life at all, you know that David did in fact have sin in his life. We know from David's sin with Bathsheba that he was in fact a sinner like us. But his heart was postured toward God and when he was, and it took a while, and he got real deep in sin, but when he was called out on his sin by the prophet Nathan, he repented. As his posture of his heart was towards God. A few years ago, I read this in Table Talk magazine. This David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect, but because he was sensitive to the Holy Spirit and knew to repent when he had sinned. Men and women after God's own heart are sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit and strive not to quench him as he convicts us of sin and guides us in righteousness. One of the best ways to be sensitive to the Spirit is to study his inspired word that we might hear him when he calls. We can also pray and join a church where members and elders alike will encourage us in holiness and even rebuke us for sin if that becomes necessary. So how does this all tie into Christmas and David's appearance in the family line of Jesus? Why did I pick this story from the life of David when I could have picked David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, David running from Saul, David running from his sons. I hope what you'll be able to see is that God worked to advance his kingdom and ultimately bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. Even through David's sinful choices. We can see that in the fact that Solomon is next in the genealogy of Jesus after David. And guess who Solomon's mother was Bathsheba after she and David uh, she became David's wife eventually the son that they had uh, that they had conceived in sin uh, that, that child died and then Solomon came later 
as we sort of move towards landing this plane today, I want to give you three points of, I guess, what you can call application or maybe challenge as we celebrate this Christmas season. Number one, God was extraordinary through the ordinary and got the glory because of it. I know that's a mouthful. Let me say it again. God was extraordinary through the ordinary and got glory because of it. When someone who has all of the traits, humanly speaking, of being able to do something great and they do that something great, then they often will take credit for it themselves. But when someone whose heart is the Lord's is empowered to do something that they recognize they cannot do without the Lord, God gets the glory for it. The challenge is that you would give God glory for all that he calls and empowers you to do as you do it. That's why I recognize and pray often that he would increase and I would decrease because this is about him because the things I do, I could not do on my own. If I am up here just doing them on my own, uh, there's no power in that. There's only power because of the Holy Spirit. There's only power because of Jesus. And he gets the glory for that. That's oftentimes somebody will tell me that the sermon really moved them or they really, you know, God really spoke to them through his word or, or they, you know, that was really beautiful, whatever. And, and, I, and oftentimes I'll just, sometimes I'll just say thank you. Um, but also recognizing, and sometimes I'll say it's God. Because... Um, I recognize that in, there's nothing, there is nothing special about me. There is everything special about Jesus. And anything good, anything great that happens in your heart because of the word being proclaimed is because God did it, not because I did it. God was extraordinary through the ordinary and got glory because of it. David, what, is, what does it say at the very end, the very end of that passage? Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David was able to do what David did because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And throughout David's life, you see an acknowledgement of that. You see an acknowledgement that the things he did, he did because God was great. When he goes out to fight Goliath, he goes out because Goliath is insulting the armies of the living God. And he goes out knowing that the God who protected him from the lion, the bear, would protect him from Goliath. Second, God made David extraordinary as a shepherd, a warrior, and a king. God empowered his anointed one. The one he chose, he empowered. He didn't, excuse me, he didn't find someone who had all the strength and ability. He used someone who was willing and available, and he equipped and empowered him to do what he had called him to do. God is calling you. 
And he won't wait till you feel like you have got what it takes to call you. Saul thought he had everything he needed to do the job. You must admit that you can't do it without the Lord. And then you're ready to begin. Rely on him. Trust him. He will equip you to obey the commands of Scripture. Now, if you come up with something that's outside of Scripture that you want to do, I make no guarantees <laughs> there. But God will equip you and strengthen you to obey what he has commanded you to do in Scripture. So study his inspired word and then trust that he will empower you through his spirit to accomplish what he has called you to do in it. A lot of us, and growing up it was this way, I remember in youth group and everything else, man, God's going to do something big through me. I want God to do something big through me. What am I going to do? I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. And we, we start to think, man, maybe God will do this. Maybe God will do that. And we neglect that there are some very specific things that God is calling us to do. Pray, read the Bible. Go to church, love each other, serve each other, be generous. Like, and we neglect those because we want to, oh, maybe I'll go to Thailand, you know? God made David extraordinary. David wasn't already, like God made him that way. He will equip you. your heart is set on him and surrendered to his will and number third number third number three maybe it's about time to wrap up number point number three jesus was the ultimate ordinary extraordinary jesus was the ultimate ordinary extraordinary The people wanted a king. And God promised an ultimate Messiah who would save the people from their sins, which was their real problem. Their problem wasn't that they needed a human king. Their problem was that they needed an eternal king. They needed their hearts changed. Did you hear them when they were calling for a king? They wanted to be like everybody around them. God had taken these people and he had set them aside as his people and gave them laws for things that they were supposed to do and not do and ways they were supposed to look and not look. So they were set aside as his people, his special possession, and he led them and he provided for them. And they're like, well, that's not good enough. We want to be like everybody around us. And too many times, church, we think, well, I want to be like everybody around us. We don't want to be the weirdos that don't go along with whatever's going on in culture and the world. But that's exactly what we're called to be, is weird, different from the world. Their problem wasn't that they needed a human king. They needed their hearts changed to serve the eternal king. They needed their sin forgiven once and for all and to be reconciled to God for all eternity. And no mere human could accomplish this. Their sin, our sin, has separated us from God. So enter Jesus at the incarnation, born as promised from the line of David, the line of kings. God became man. The promised Messiah would not enter the scene on a war horse coming to defeat Rome and all oppressors of the people, but he would enter through the womb of a virgin girl 
He would be laid in a manger and grow up the adopted son of a common man. He would look ordinary. There was nothing in outward appearance to attract you to him. Yet he was extraordinary. He was all God and all man, the perfect God-man, God with us, Emmanuel. He dwelled among us through the mundane stuff of life. Then he willingly and obediently gave his perfect life on the cross in our place for our sin. The very wrath of God was due us in our sin. We earned that one. And yet he took our punishment on the cross in our place. That's the story of Christmas. The God-man who came and lived to die and rise again to prove that people like you and me can have a relationship with the creator of the universe. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our everlasting father. He is our prince of peace. So I beg you, repent of your sin and believe this good news. And go tell it on the mountain, in the coffee shop, at school, at work, and everywhere else that Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you stand and pray with me? God, as we come to this time of singing our final song, I pray that the message of your word would reverberate in our hearts. God, that we would look at our lives and see where we've let fear or doubt or the pressures of the world or the cares of, of things going on around us. Keep us from obeying your word. God, bring us quickly to repentance and bring us back. When we get off track, bring us back. Cause the posture of our hearts to be towards you. That when we hear your word, we respond with a yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That we would not look at our lives as our own, but if we follow you, King Jesus, that we would see our lives as yours to do as you please. If there's anybody who can hear my voice and they've never believed the message of the gospel that you died in their place for their sins and rose three days later, God, I pray today would be the day they would repent of their sin and believe and trust in you for salvation, Jesus. It is in faith in you alone. By grace, through faith, that we come to know you, Jesus. And God, as we sing, I pray that the rest of this music would be a sweet sound to your ear, that our, our hearts would be tuned to you, that you would move us ever closer Help us draw ever near. And we know, God, that no matter whether we feel near, whether we feel far, that you promise to always be near. To make your home with us. 
to never leave us nor forsake us if we are in you, Jesus. Cause that to reverberate in our hearts and move our feet and our hands to action, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.